Jeremiah 12, our passage uh, that we're going to study tonight is just the first six verses. And so let's read through the first four here and then we'll get right into our study. Jeremiah speaks to the Lord and he says to him after discovering that there was a plot against his life by the very people from the city where he was from because of the preaching that he did the preaching that the Lord had commanded him to give to the people about their idolatry and how God was going to need to, was going to judge this idolatry and so he says to the Lord righteous are you o lord when i plead with you yet let me talk with you about your judgments why does the way of the wicked prosper why are those happy who deal so treacherously you have planted them yes they have taken root They grow, yes, they bear fruit. You are near in their mouth, but far from their mind. But you, O Lord, know me. You have seen me. And you have tested my heart towards you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither? The beasts and birds are consumed. For the wickedness of those who dwell there, because they said, he will not see our final end. At some time in our lives, we have probably made a statement similar to this. Life's just not fair. We've all probably said that in one way or another. That's just not fair. Life's not fair. In our younger days, that's for some of us here, but in our younger days we were more than likely idealistic about things in life and in the world. So we were ready to tackle injustice head on, especially when tough times were affecting us as well as everyone else. I know that uh, when we go through tough times, that it's easy to complain how unfair life seems. We sometimes get to thinking our life's worth, or our life is worse than everyone else's. You don't have to raise your hand, but I'm pretty sure you've thought that. That brings to mind a story that I read this this week in preparation for tonight. A young man was at the end of his rope. Seeing no way out, he dropped to his knees in prayer. Lord, I can't go on, he said. I have too heavy a cross to bear. The Lord replied, my son, if you can't bear its weight, just place your cross inside this room. Then open that other door and pick out any cross you wish. The young man was filled with relief. Thank you, Lord, he sighed. And he did what he was told. Upon entering the other door, he saw many other crosses, some so large, the tops weren't even visible. And then he spotted a tiny cross 
leaning against the far wall. I'd like that one, Lord, he whispered. And the Lord replied, my son, that is the cross you just brought in. You see, sometimes our cross is nothing compared to many crosses that others bear. Is life unfair? Here in today's text, as Jeremiah the prophet is talking to God about these people plotting against him, he begins to wonder why the Lord allows wicked people to prosper. He wanted some answers from righteous Yahweh, from righteous God. In effect, Jeremiah understood God's righteousness, but he wanted to talk to God about his judgments. Oh, you're righteous, Lord, but we need to talk. We need to talk about your judgments. So his prayerful approach to the Lord was as though he were in a court of law. In our text it says there, yet let me talk with you about your judgments. The English Standard Version translates that phrase as, yet I would plead my case before you, using more or less the terminology of court. The um, Holman Christian Standard Bible would interpret it as, yet I wish to contend with you. Again, some contention as far as being in a court is concerned. And And the New Living uh, Translation translates the whole verse this way in Jeremiah 12, verse 1. It says, Lord, you always give me justice when I bring a case before you. Now let me bring you this complaint. Why are the wicked so prosperous? Why are evil people so happy? You know, I find it really interesting that if you go back to chapter 11, until God warned Jeremiah... Think about this. Until God warned Jeremiah about this plot against his life from his own city folk, he knew nothing about the plot. And when he did hear the news, when the Lord finally told him, he felt like a helpless lamb being led to the slaughter. Go back, if you will, to verses 18 through 20 of chapter 11. It says there, Now the Lord gave me knowledge of it. He didn't have an idea of this plot. But he says, The Lord gave me knowledge of it, and I know it, for you showed me their doings. But I was like a docile lamb brought to the slaughter, and I did not know that they had devised schemes against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with its fruit, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be remembered no more. But, O Lord of hosts, you who judge righteously, Testing the mind and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have revealed my cause. (laughs) He didn't know anything about the plot, but now that he finds out about it, he's ready to say, Lord, what they wanted to do to me, you do to them. So take note, though. Take note that Jeremiah was bold before the people, but in private, he was really broken before God. This is not arrogance before the Lord. This is a brokenness because he would not take this to anyone but to God. 
And it's a pattern that all of us should take to heart. Brokenness before the Lord allows God to put us back together and to be held together for His purposes and His plans. You know, what we don't know, God will reveal. What we need to know, God will reveal. But how we know is when we reveal our heart to Him, which He already knows, by the way. He already knows our hearts. He already knows what we're going through. He already knows the pain, the hurt. And I want you to keep in mind that the things that He does know, when it comes to serving Him, when it comes to pouring ourselves out as Jeremiah did. From the very beginning, God chose Jeremiah as a young man to do this ministry before a people that would not even pay attention to him. In the sense that they didn't do what he said. And this would be the pattern of his whole ministry to the very end. And we've talked about it before when we talk about Jeremiah's uh, uh, concerns before God. This is one of those concerns, by the way. Pleading before the Lord, his case. I don't understand. It doesn't seem fair. But he brings it to God. So that God can put him back together. And every time Jeremiah does this, God puts him back together. You see, in Psalm 34, verse, eight, the, uh, verse 18, the psalmist said, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and saves such as have a contrite spirit. In all the land at the time of Jeremiah, he pretty much was alone. And he would be pretty much the only one to go to God. And he would be the only one pretty much who God would speak to directly. And so this particular verse in Psalms, Psalm 34, verse 18, kind of gives us an indication of where Jeremiah was at. He was near to God. God drew near to him because he had a broken heart. And God says he saves such as have a contrite. Spirit. Psalm 51, verse 17, the very psalm of David and his prayer and, uh, and cry for repentance and, and forgiveness. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. But you see, even in this brokenness, Jeremiah was not kept from verbalizing his complaint before the Lord. And we have to understand that this is a good thing for us to know about God, that, you know, when we come before Him, He's not going to say, you know, He's not like the great and mighty Oz. You all know the great and mighty Oz, that when you went before the great and mighty Oz, if He didn't like your request or your complaint, He would just tell you to be gone and raise all kinds of fire and stuff behind Him. That's not our God. Jeremiah just couldn't understand why a holy God would allow the false prophets and the unfaithful priests to prosper in their ministries while he, a faithful servant, was treated like a sacrificial lamb. 
And I would almost have to say that there is so much of that very same kind of cry before God. Why, Lord, do you allow so many false prophets and so many unfaithful ministers on, you know, TV and on, you know, wherever, going about here and there, taking people's money and, 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 and preaching messages that, that only fill their pockets. But, you know, here we are serving you day in, day out with the burdens and the, of the ministry and the burdens of the hearts of people. And, you know, Lord, we don't understand it. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? That was his question. Why are those happy who deal so, treacher- so treacherously? And the first question, why does the wicked, or why does the way of the wicked prosper, is frequently asked in Scripture. Job asked it in Job 12, verse 6. In essence, it's not a question here, but nonetheless, the same thought comes to mind in his heart when he says, the tents of robbers prosper, and those who provoke God are secure in what God provides by his hand. Later on in Job 21, verse 7, he does ask the question, why do the wicked live and become old? Yes, become mighty in power. Why, Lord? Why is this? We go to the Psalms in Psalm 73, verses 3 through 5. Keep your finger here in Psalm 73 because we'll come back to it. But in Psalm 73, verse 3, it says, For I was envious of the boastful, the, the, the psalmist said. I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They're, they're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. You know, now take that view for just a minute. Don't let that, that go. Think about that for a moment. Lord, nothing's wrong with them. They're strong. They go to Planet Fitness. They look good. When they smile, a little glint comes out of their teeth. Nothing's wrong with these guys. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Folks, think about it. We're looking at the outside. What has God already said about those who will not follow Him and who will eventually reject Him? They got it worse off than anybody. They'll prosper here on this earth, but they won't spend eternity with God. You see how short-sighted Christians can be, how short-sighted people can be when we say, you know, Lord, things are just not fair. Isn't there good reason why we are not to blow our own trumpets in this world? Jesus himself said, don't go out there like those who pray openly so that they can be seen of men, because that's their reward. That's the reward that they'll get on this, on this earth. But you pray in privately when your Father who sees you in private will reward you openly. But the psalmist is just like us. We're human. And the psalmist was human. And Jeremiah was human. Job was human. And he wondered why. Why do these things happen? Psalm 93, no, I'm sorry, Psalm 94, verse 3. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? How long, Lord? You see, we're ready to judge everybody before their time. There's enough wickedness in the world. Lord, Jesus, come now. Take care of it. But if the Lord had come in 1975, 
of many of us today could be assured that we would have been with Christ. Of course, some of us weren't born in 1975. Let's move that up to 85. What about 95? What if the Lord had come in 1995? Would any of us, you know, would we, would we be safe? You see, you understand the question, though. You understand what, I, what I'm getting at? You see, the Lord is coming. But there are people that still need him. There are wicked people that are going to become righteous, not because of what they've done, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And we can say that because, you see, that's our testimony. We were sinners. Once I was blind, but now I see. Once I was lost, but I've been found. And the prophet Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13. The same idea the prophet's asking you are, you are of pure eyes and to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why? There's the question. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Same question. In the book of Malachi, the prophet Malachi, chapter 2, verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? And that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them more. Where is the God of justice? So it's a question that's been asked for thousands of years. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous perish? And so was Jeremiah also accusing the Lord that he, as well as Israel, had broken covenant? Because to some extent you have to say, yeah, I think that's kind of what Jeremiah is getting to here. That's kind of what Jeremiah is asking. Or at least accusing the Lord that he, along with Israel, had broken covenant. And I want you to take, for example, Psalm 1, verses 3 and 4. Most of you are familiar with Psalm 1, but here in verses 3 and 4 meaning the, the, the last verse of the first part and the first verse of the, the second part of the sixth verse psalm, Psalm 1. Verse 3, it says, He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Who's that? The person who is blessed by God, who doesn't walk after the counsel of the wicked and all of that. The person who's blessed by God. Notice it says, He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season whose leaf will also shall not wither and whatever he does shall prosper. So the blessed person shall prosper. And what does it say about the wicked? But the ungodly are not so, verse 4, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. So what, so what Jeremiah is kind of getting at is, well, Lord, something's not right here. Because the blessed person is the one that's being driven away, while the wicked one is prospering. So in Jeremiah's thought, in mind, God has broken covenant, along with Israel. And as we shall see in the next verse of our text, which is verse 2, Jeremiah placed the responsibility on the Lord for planting the wicked. Look at verse 2 now, Jeremiah chapter 12. You have planted them, he says. 
using somewhat of the same terminology of Psalm 1 concerning the righteous and the blessed. He says, you have planted them, speaking of the wicked, you have planted them, yes, they've taken root. They grow, yes, they bear fruit. You are near in their mouth. But now he's, what he's pointing out here in this last part of the verse here is their hypocrisy. He says, you're blessing hypocrites. Because he says, you are near in their mouth. In other words, they speak a lot about the Lord, but far from their mind. Isaiah 29, we talked about that, where, you know, uh, God was in their lips, but not in their heart. But let me mention two things. Let me mention two things before we look more carefully at verse 2. First of all, the struggle that Jeremiah was going through was the prosperity of the wicked. The, the, the struggle that Jeremiah was going through was the prosperity of the wicked. They seemed to have no problems in life, while Jeremiah, the prophet of God, did have a lot of problems in life. Now, we know that it is a blessing to be a child of God. We know it to be true that it is a blessing to be a child of God, but we also know that it is not always easy to be a child of God. We must, because of this, we must never lose our focus. Remember, we have forsaken this life for Jesus to spend an eternity with him. Folks, you've got to listen to this point here. You've got to understand what I'm saying when I say that we have forsaken this life for Jesus to spend an eternity with him. We have said we're no longer of this world. We belong to Christ. That is what we said when we came to know Christ as our Lord and Savior. We are not of this world. We belong to the kingdom of God. We no longer are our own. Because we were bought with a price. So we've got to stop living and acting like the world. And start acting like kingdom Residents, residents of the kingdom of God, citizens of the kingdom of God. So we can't lose our focus when bad things happen to us, when struggles and trials come and hit us, when every wind is, you know, is just coming at us. We have to keep reminding ourselves that we belong to Christ. I told you to keep your finger in Psalm 23, uh, Psalm 73. Let's go back there uh, for just a moment, because I want you to consider what the psalmist Asaph wrote here. Psalm 73, going back over to verse 2. Because I believe we started with verse 3 last time, but I want you to go back one verse. Notice what he said. He said, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled... My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped 
And he gives the reason why. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I wanted what they had. They were more prosperous than me. They were happier than me. I'm not supposed to be a child of God. But he said, I almost slipped. (laughs) I almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And how did Asaph get a better perspective of things? How did he get a proper perspective of things? How did he come to overcome? Jump down to verse 17. One verse. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Speaking of the wicked. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Folks, I, I know that I could, I, I, it's, it seems like I'll just turn blue in the face if I keep saying this to you week in and week out. I don't care if I have to say it at every service, at every time that we get together, at some point in time, in the hour or so that, that we go through our studies and teachings. But I've got to say it again. You need to spend time in the Word of God. You need to spend time in prayer. You need to spend time in church to hear God's Word. Now, right there, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. You're here already. And if you keep your eyes on Jesus Christ, you keep your eyes on the Lord, you will not be moved, your feet will not slip, because you will understand what is the end of the wicked, their eternal punishment, and that eventually they don't get away with anything. Do you understand that? Okay. You see, that was what I was trying to say before. Oh, Lord, why do the wicked prosper? They're doing better than me, and I'm your child. I, I think sometimes I think maybe we should just hear the Lord say, shut up. Just shut up. I'm here. I'm yours. I give you what you need. I get you through the hard times, through the bad times, through the sad times. I never leave you. I told you I never leave you. Ah! God doesn't have to do that. That's, you know, that's our frustration. That's not his. Because you see, he's already seen the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. Secondly, we need to remember that the problem of the prosperity of the wicked in the light of God's righteousness is not directly solved here or anywhere else in Scripture. Think about that for a moment. The problem of the prosperity of the wicked in light of God's righteousness is not directly solved here or anywhere else in the Word. The only final answer is faith in the sovereign wisdom and righteousness of God. Think about that for a moment. Let that sink into your mind and into your heart. The only final answer is faith in the sovereign wisdom and righteousness of God. Now let me give you some examples. Turn to Psalm 4. Psalm 4. And beginning with verse 3. 
Notice what the psalmist says here. But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Meditate on that. Verse 5. Then he says, offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, Lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. I will both lie down in peace and sleep for you alone, O Lord. Make me dwell in safety. If the wicked are prospering now, you know what? I'm going to be at peace about it. Because you, you have put gladness in my heart. So where where did the joy go? When the wind, when the wind of, of trial came, <clears throat> where where did joy go when when, when the, the the wind of some kind of tribulation came upon you or some kind of testing or some kind of uh, even temptation? Where did the joy of God go? Last time I checked, the Bible tells us in Nehemiah chapter eight verse ten, the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. In the times of trials and struggles and tribulations and afflictions, even the psalmist in Psalm 119 would say, I am glad that I've been afflicted that I may know your statutes. But not just Psalm 4. Psalm 18, Psalm 18, verses 29-31. I love this little statement here, for by you, the psalmist says, for by you I can run against a troop. <laughs> but by my God I can leap over a wall with a single bound. As for God... His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in Him. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? (laughs) Well, that's pretty good. But turn to Psalm 37. And look at what he says here. The psalmist says in Psalm 37, this is David, by the way. David says, do not fret, because of evildoers. Now, I've said this before, but the word fret is not so much fear. It's not so much fear. Because a lot of people think, well, fret means fear. But in, in reality, it, it is, it's, it's an anger over that prosperity of the wicked, as it were. Notice what it says. Do not fret or get, you know, get uptight because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. You see the connection here? Uh, for they shall soon be cut down like grass and wither as the green herb. But notice what he says, trust in the Lord. 
and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. It's interesting that, that Jeremiah would have known the Psalms and would have known what David had said. But don't we have the same problem in the fact that we have God's Word? As a matter of fact, we have Bibles that Jeremiah didn't have. And we carry them with us all the time. Or at least I think we do. Maybe we ought to open them from time to time and see what it says. Then we wouldn't be so messed up about certain things when things are going bad. Well, getting back to verse 2 of our text, Jeremiah is pointing out to the Lord that he believes him to be responsible for these wicked, hypocritical people coming into existence, growing and flourishing like trees. In essence, he is saying to the Lord, you're blessing these hypocrites who fake belief in you. They speak of you often, but they neither, they neither know you or love you. You're blessing them. Well, the fact that, that the wicked exist, grow, and flourish is the result of what theologians call common grace. Common grace. Something spoken of in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke by Jesus himself. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, verses 43 through 45. You have heard it, that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And notice what he says. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. What is he saying? That's common grace. You be different. You be different. In Luke chapter 6, a very similar passage, but in six, Luke 6 verse 35, Jesus says, But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, for He's kind to the unthankful and evil. Common grace. You be different. You show love. You show mercy. You give without seeking anything in return, and I'll bless you. But I'm kind to them. So you see where we can get to in all of this? 
all churned up and fretting and, you know, all weirded out because look at those dastardly sinners getting everything that I want. Ooh, there's the problem. What's in your heart? What's your desire in this life? The things that others want, that's, that's envy. What do we want with that? Hasn't God already blessed you? You see? This is, the, this is the lesson that God is giving to the prophet. So you see, a prophet is human. Don't, doesn't that make you feel better? Makes me feel better. My goodness. We say, wow, that's Jeremiah. He's a prophet. Hey, we said the same thing about Peter and Paul, didn't we? In our study of the book of Acts. Which we're coming back to, by the way. On Sunday morning. And so in contrast to the hypocrisy of the wicked, Jeremiah reminds the Lord that his faith is real. And so in verse 3 he says of Jeremiah 12, But you, O Lord, know me. You have seen me. And you have tested my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. Second time he said this. Remember he says it at the end of chapter 11. He says it again. So without a doubt, the Lord knew, of course, that, uh, that Jeremiah's attitude toward him was entirely different than those hypocrites. God knew that already. But the prophet prayed that the Lord would drag them off to punishment like sheep to be slaughtered, just like they wanted to do to him. Why shouldn't they receive from God the same fate they had planned for him? That's his question. Well, we may at times respond as Jeremiah did. Because we're human. Sometimes, you know, people do things to us, and, and maybe on the outside we say, oh, Lord, just, you know, forgive them, forgive them. But inside we're saying, yeah, but I forgive them. But, Lord, if you can, just sock it to them. Somehow. Get, just come up with an uppercut that nobody sees. A boom, and ooh, that would make me feel so good. I mean, that's the way. You know, you're laughing because I know you understand what I'm saying here. You have that? Oh, so, <laughs> well, do you remember what James and John had been, when, when James and John, the, the apostles of Jesus, had been rejected in Samaria? Let's go to that story in Luke chapter 9. Let's go there, because that's us. That's us, too. We're ready to call down fire from heaven when somebody rejects us because we're trying to share the gospel with them. And here in Luke 9, verse 51, Now it came to pass, when the, when the time had come for Jesus to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent messengers before his face. And, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? Now, now notice, you know, they're not telling the Lord to bring the fire. They said, well, do you want us to do it? You gave us some power earlier on, so we could go out and do one thing or another. And now we wanted to go do that. We want to show you. Yes, Lord, we'll call down fire. Isn't this a test for us to show the power that we have? A power to get these guys. Burn them up. 
But what did Jesus do? He turned and he rebuked them. And he said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. This is James and John. These guys are the big guys in the apostles. But he tells them, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Wow. <laughs> and they went to another village. I don't think the next village was going to require any consumption by fire. So if we feel that is the way to deal with our enemies, to gather together our weapons and fight against these enemies of God, then, then the Lord Jesus is saying that we aren't being guided by the Spirit of God. Can, can, can you read that? Can you see that in what he's saying? You don't even know what manner of spirit you're of. I want you to be of my Spirit. I want you to be of the Spirit of God. What are the gifts of the Spirit, by the way? I mean, what are the fruit of the Spirit, I should say, from Ephesians, Galatians 5? Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, kindness. Self-control. Self-control. You don't know what matter of spirit you're of. In contrast... Jesus came with the love of the Father, didn't he? Jesus came with the love of the Father, even to those who would become his enemies. Who didn't understand why Jesus came. Who didn't want to believe that Jesus was Messiah. Who didn't want anything to do with this man. Who actually showed himself to be Christ. By the things that he did. And the things that he said. But in this, Jesus exemplified the Spirit of God. You see why John 3.16 and 17 is such an important verse to know? Verses to know, I should say. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I did, the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save men. You know, there are two questions that are easy to ask and yet difficult to answer. We've already talked about one. Two questions that are easy to ask and yet difficult to answer. You know what they are? Why and how long? Easy to ask, difficult to answer. And Jeremiah truly was... He, he truly was concerned for the welfare of his people. He really had a heart for his people. He saw the land that was distressed because 
of the sins of the leaders, with, with many people suffering because of it. And so he says in verse 4 of Jeremiah 12, How long? How long will the land mourn? And the herbs of every field wither. The beasts and birds are consumed for the wickedness of those who dwell there because they said he will not see our final end. We know that God has sent a drought to the land as one of the covenant disciplines. One of the disciplines upon the Israel for breaking the covenant was drought. This goes all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 15, it says, But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all His commandments and His statutes, which I command you today, that all of these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Then he mentions a whole bunch, but then I want you to jump down to verse 23 and verse 24, because this is what applies here. It says in verse 23, And your heavens, which are over your head, shall be bronze, and the earth, which is under you, shall be iron. The Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and dust. From the heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Drought. No water, no rain, drought. More than likely, the wicked were saying that Jeremiah wouldn't see their destruction because it wasn't coming. That's why they said at the end, he will not see our final end. Some would believe that that's saying that they're saying that God is not going to bring them to destruction Why? Because remember what the false prophets were saying? Everything's okay. We're all right. Peace. Peace. And think about this. They were saying these things in the midst of a famine and drought. They were saying these things when when it was already dry. God had already brought this drought to pass. This is the height, listen carefully, this is the height of thinking that they could hide their sins, their sins from the Lord. This is the height of thinking that anybody can hide their sins from the Lord and say, oh, we're, we're okay. You all remember the, the philosophy of about you know, 35, 40 years ago. I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. And what we discovered in all of that was nobody was okay. Because the Bible always, say, always has said that, that, that nobody's okay. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. If we would just listen to what the Bible said, we'd be, in, we'd be okay. Man tries to be okay on their own and what did it get what does it get them? They can't deal with what's happening around them. Therefore, they say, we want to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. And if we get everybody to drink Coke together, we'll be all right. That was the 60s philosophy. And then later on, it was, we are the world. And then it was, what else? You know, Farm Aid and, you know, Band Aid and, you know, and Gatorade or whatever. I mean, we had all kinds of aid, but we didn't have anybody trusting Christ. You know, and that, that, where did it go from there? 
So now understand this. Jeremiah is angry. His eyes are focused on the wicked. His thoughts are upon all they are doing and all they are getting away with. What would God's response be then to Jeremiah's questions? Boy, the response will blow you away. Look at verse 5 and verse 6. This is God speaking to Jeremiah. And he says, if you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? And if in the land of peace in which you trusted they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? For even your brothers, the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. Yes, they have called a multitude after you. It's your own family, Jeremiah. Do not believe them, even though they speak smooth words to you. Do you notice that God's focus was not on the wicked, but on his servant Jeremiah? Especially in verse 5. Do you notice that God's focus was not on the wicked, but on his servant Jeremiah? The Lord was saying to Jeremiah with his own two questions. If you could only trust me in a time of peace, how will you manage when the, uh, when the going gets tough? How will you going to manage? If, if you're barely getting by in a time of peace, and if you're only trusting me in that time, How will you manage when the going gets tough? First of all, God is telling Jeremiah not to worry about his enemies because it's only going to get worse. Consider, when we find ourselves in a time of suffering, we ask, how can I get out of this? Right? How can I get out of this? What we ought to ask is, what can I get out of this? We have to change our whole perspective. The question shouldn't be, how can I get out of this? It should be, what can I get out of this? What can I learn from this? What can I take from this? What can I receive from God for this time? Warren Wiersbe writes this. He says, God's servants don't live by explanations. They live by promises. Understanding explanations may satisfy our curiosity and make us smarter people, but laying hold of God's promises will build our character and make us better servants. The whole answer to the questions is, Jeremiah, trust me now. Living a life of service to God isn't easy. Will you agree with me? Living a life of service to God isn't easy. Let's come to reality. Let's come to grips with the reality of that statement. Let me read to you what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Paul says, Not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but, but one thing I do, Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward. Literally agonizing forward to those things which are ahead. I press, 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 agonize toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying living the life of service unto God is not an easy life, but we need to trust in the Lord and we need to press on with God.
He's our only hope. He's our only strength. He's our only wisdom. He's our only strength and power and might. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy. It's a merciful thing that He has saved us. So because we come to Christ, we, don't always, always, we aren't to say, well, now I've come to Jesus, everything is a bed of roses. Well, it is in our relationship to God. We have a place in heaven because it says in Ephesians that we have a place in heaven already reserved for us. That's where the bed of roses is. Here, we have Christ. And his Holy Spirit to help us and get us through this life that isn't so easy until the day that Jesus comes for us to take us home. Because this isn't home. And if you make this home, then you're going to feel like Jeremiah in that brief moment of time when he says, Why is everybody prospering and I'm not? Secondly, living a life of service to God becomes harder, not easier. It's already not easy, but it's going to get harder. Why should I tell you anything different? Why should I stand up here and say like so many people on TV and, 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 and all these guys that get up there and say, Oh, listen, God just wants you to have everything that you want. Why should I tell you that and lie to you? You have everything you need in Christ Jesus. What else do you want? You have everything in her having received His Holy Spirit so that you might be His witnesses, His light to this world, His salt to this putrid earth until the day of Christ. And the fact of the matter is, He seems to have blessed us all pretty well with everything that we need for life and godliness through Jesus. But things will be harder. How much harder can things be when you find out that your own family has been hypocritical with you and and, and spoken out against you? That's Jeremiah's situation. That's what God is saying to him. It's not going to get easier. But he did promise him one thing. I'm going to be with you. And if God promises he's going to be with us, don't you think that that's where we can rest? Thirdly, well, not even thirdly, let's not get there. Let me give you some more scripture uh, support here. Micah chapter 7 verse 6. Micah 7 verse 6. The same thing that Jeremiah was going through. For son dishonors the father, daughter rises against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Do you know that Jesus quoted that? In Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 36, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Hey, that's a wonderful scripture for Christmas time. I've got to remember this for the you know, next couple of weeks. Don't think that I came to bring peace on earth. Peace on earth. <laughs> By the way, he did. You know, he did bring peace. I'll put that all in context, you know, <laughs> so you'll understand. He says, For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother. He's quoting from Micah. Uh, daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Folks, it's not going to get easier. It's going to get harder to be a believer in Jesus Christ. But thirdly, 
Please look at what God sees in all of this. Living a life of service to God gets better as we mature. That was God's whole goal with Jeremiah. That living a life of service to God will get better as we mature. Through these trials. Through these circumstances. Each new challenge given to Jeremiah. Racing horses. Say, well, you run with men and you get tired. What's going to happen when you have to race horses? Not, not on the horse. Race against the horse. The, the, you know, the metaphor. The challenge gets harder. Tackling thickets in the jungles of, 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 of well, they call it the jungles of, of the Jordan. But, you know, the thickets were very, uh, very hard to get through. He said, but you're, you're going to have to go through that. Opposition by relatives. All three things. What were they doing? They were getting progressively harder to make him better. So these things were designed to develop his faith and to grow in his ministry skills. A person who faces problems and trials, who, has, who at one time had said, you know, I want to serve the Lord. So then all of a sudden the trials come. And you say, oh, I didn't want the trials, I just want to serve the Lord. Sorry. The trials came to test you. To try you. To prove you. Like one who tests metal. If metal is not has not gone through the fire properly, when it comes out, it's brittle and it breaks. When it is tested properly and it comes out the way it's supposed to, it is because the fire was hot, hot enough to burn away all the impurities, to make the metal strong. And you don't build character, folks. You don't build character by being a spectator. You don't build character by being a spectator. God wants us in ministry, not observing ministry. That is why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 that the gifts of teachers and evangelists and all were given to the church for the equipping of the saints to do the work of the ministry. So living a life of service to God, after realizing that it's not easy, that it's going to get harder than easier, that is going to develop better servants because of maturity through the process of testing. So who was being tested in these first six verses of Jeremiah 12? Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah was God's focus. Not the wicked. Jeremiah. And you and me. Why? Because we saw so much of ourselves in Jeremiah. Listen to what Paul says in Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. I know. Some people say, well, I don't know if Paul wrote I, I He did. Just don't worry about it. We can talk about it later. 
Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin. Notice, not just the weight, but the sin that so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Listen, if this is a race, you know, a race, you know what he's saying? Looking unto Jesus, the starting line and the finish line of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your own souls. Consider him. Consider Jesus. He's been there for us. He went through it all for you and me so that we can stand strong in the midst of the winds of adversity in this life. Two things I want to read to you as we close. Well, one is a quote by Teddy Roosevelt. Another is just my closing statement. But Theodore Roosevelt said this. He said, It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena. Remember, by the way, that I said that uh, you don't build character by being a spectator. So listen to what he says. He goes on to say, uh, The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end of the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Tremendous statement. But I, I read that because I, I just think of this person named Jeremiah. And we're seeing now how God is, is building Jeremiah's character more and more because he's going to face harder and harder trials as we go on. But our world today needs more Jeremiah's. Our world today needs more Jeremiah's who in the midst of opposition are true to the standards of the scriptures, the standards of the word of God, patient in the proclamation of the gospel, gentle in the hands of persecutors, committed to the protective care of the chief shepherd of our souls and burdened for the souls of lost men and women. Those are the kind of Jeremiah's we need in this world today. And those are the kind of Jeremiah's I want you to be the more you see what God is doing to him. Say, God, do that to me. Because our great promise is from God himself who said, I will be with you always. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. No matter what you face, no matter what you deal with in this life, I'm your strength. I'm your, your guide. I'm your guard. I'm your shield. 
I am your helmet of salvation. I am the sword of your uh, the sword of the spirit. I'm your breastplate of righteousness. I'm your belt of truth. I'm your boots of the preparation of the gospel of peace. I'm your shield of faith. And you belong to me. Shall we pray?